Martin. Well, good. Morning, everybody. It is uh, really good to be with you today, and um, always just thanks, Tim. Uh, always just such a privilege to be able to speak from this platform, and uh, I think particularly to talk around this topic around hurry. We're reading a book called *The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry*, and we're doing a series around this and really digging into its contents. And I don't know if you remember last week, but Ross spoke about the fact that in all the conversations he's having and meeting with people, he's seeing tired eyes. And it's not just uh, we're getting into October, November, it's the sort of downhill towards Christmas, but there's more going on. There's been a lot happening in the last couple of years, and people are burnt out. And my wife often says to me after like a long or a busy season, how are you feeling? And I'll say to her, my eyes are burning. You know that feeling when you're just coming a little bit to the end of yourself? And I really feel that uh, through the contents of the book and, and the series that we're in, and what I'm going to speak to today about rest, I really believe that God wants to do something today. I really believe that today is a moment that we just get to stop and reflect on Him and enter into the rest that He promises us. So I'd love just to start this morning by praying for us, um, and then we'll take it from there. So Father, we just thank You for today. I thank You, Father, that every time we come to church, it's an opportunity and an encounter to just meet with You, God, to hear You, to stop the noise outside, to quieten the voices in our own head, God and just ask you, Father God, to speak. Lord, I pray that you would meet with us today. I thank you, Jesus, that you care deeply about every person who got in their car and came to church this morning. I thank you, God, that you have knowledge of their story, that you know exactly where they're at, Father, and I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would meet with us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So when I first heard about this book, I thought two things. One, I really need to read this, this book, and two, I really don't have time to read this book. And so I decided the best thing to do would be to listen to it. So I uh, had to go up to the Berg, and I thought, well, it's a five-hour, 21-minute book, perfect, drive to the Berg, drive back, listen to it both ways. I finished the book on the way to the Berg, and the irony wasn't lost on me that I'd listened to a five-hour book in two hours, 45, a book about hurry on two times one speed on the Audible app. And uh, there was, I started to go, maybe there's something wrong with the way I live my life. And, uh, and the problem with this book is it's like a mirror. You hold it up in front of yourself and start to get a sense as to the kind of life that you live. And uh, Shane and Ross, in the first two weeks of the series, both spoke about the hurry test. And I mean, I'm like unashamedly 10 out of 10 on the hurry test. I'm trying to get to the front of the robot before any other cars are there. I'm trying to find the, the quickest way out of the supermarket. And, and I started to think, well, it's a stage of life that I'm in. I've got two young kids busy, lots of responsibilities, things going on. And then I kind of like the, the self-audit through reading the book and realized I've been living this way for a long time. And uh, I think everybody kind of recognizes like when you're at school, you do things quickly because you just want to play. But then when you get to varsity, like that's when you get to chill. But then I thought about my varsity life and I was like, I didn't chill at all. Like I had four hectic years. I'd do A typical day would be uh, going to lectures in the morning uh, and then I would tutor somebody up at Westville campus and make a bit of bucks here. And the reason I was busy is that I was peddling six or seven jobs at the time, be trying to make cash as a student. And then I'd finish tutoring someone, I'd come to Durban North and I'd coach some five and six-year-olds in cricket at Northland's Primary, get a bit of cash there. And then I, I got this really strange job, but it paid really well, where this guy was trying to distribute food-based vitamins into pharmacies in KZN. And so he'd pay me per kilometer and pay me per pharmacy that I walked into. So I mapped out KZN, and I found Alpha Farm pharmacies that not even Alpha Farm knew existed in this province. <laughs> I was in Essipingo, Richards Bay, down the south coast, just clocking up the mileage and charging this guy. You could decide on the ethics of it, but I made some good cash. 
And then I'd finish that, and I would, I, would let, I, would, uh, I would teach a young guy. He was in grade six Afrikaans. I can't speak a word, but again, some decent cash. Uh, and then I'd start waitering. I've covered most of the restaurants in Durban, and I'd wait from 5 p.m. till midnight and then repeat next day. Not like your normal varsity, like on a schedule all the time, rushing from one thing to the next. When I started working, um, it was my second job up in Joburg. I remember driving one day from a client from... Actually, from our offices, we were in the south of Joburg up to a client in Bryanston. I'd been redlining it, stressed, working all night. And I remember pulling into the yellow lane and phoning my dad and going, Dad, I'm having a heart attack. Like, I'm going down. This is it. This is my last phone call. It's you. Like, I'm having heart palpitations. He's like, wake up. What are you doing? You're 23 years old. Like, why are you in such a hurry? And I started to think through these things and realize, like, I've been in a hurry for a long time. Like, even today, the Warrener household, like, we're in a hurry. 13 weeks ago, I went for a run. My wife phoned me one kilometer in and said, I'm in labor. I thought, you're messing with my run now. But I decided I better get back. I ran the quickest K of my life, about 3.30 a K back home. I get there, we leave the house at 8 a.m. and our baby was born at 9.20 a.m. An hour and 20 minutes later, the 25th of July. So the Warreners are in a hurry. Um, And maybe if you didn't believe me enough as to whether I'm in a hurry, and don't judge me for this, but four weeks after my baby was born, I ran the comrades, and I'm standing at the start line, and I'm looking at all these runners around me, and they've got stuff written on their arm, like, the mind is stronger than the body, don't give up, you won't break, and on my arm, I just wrote in big capital letters, slow down, <laughs> but partly by nature, because I know myself, and I thought to myself, I know that when I hear the national anthem, and I hear chariots of fire, I'm going to be the first man out the gate going down Church Street in Maritzburg. And I don't know where I'm going to be in Pine Town seven hours later. But it kind of gives you a clue that I've been in a hurry. (laughs) So you might be thinking to yourself, why is this guy talking to us about hurry this morning? Well, I think partly because I think I've wrestled with this for a long time. And I've had times where I've made progress in being able to slow down and engage with God and hear what he's saying. And then there are times that I've regressed. But I think particularly in the last couple of months, I've had a massive breakthrough in this area and, and I'm really excited to share with you this morning just, just some of the practicalities of what I'm going to speak to today and then also the life that God gives us from it. But I don't think that many of us here today are particularly different. Like if you really were to do an audit on your life, we're in a hurry. There's a lot going on. We've had a lot happening in the last couple of years. And it does feel like Ross was saying, eyes are tired. People are redlining, you know. And this idea, the idea of having margin in your life is like a foreign concept. Remember those days where you could like finish a day, it was productive, it was busy, but you could sit back and there was margin. Just some time for me, just if I want to like engage God, I can. If I want to watch a series, I can. Just that idea of having space. Remember that thing? It seems to be gone. And John Mark Homer in the book, he speaks about margin being a function of, of the load placed on you and the limitations on you. And so I looked at these things and I thought to myself, if I look at the load, like at the moment I've got a three-year-old son, I've got a 12-week-old daughter, busy job, family responsibilities. Like I look at these things and the load isn't getting any less. And like I like my wife, like I like my job, like my family are decent. So I'm gonna have to offboard one of the children. Like at this stage, the 12-week-old is adding zero value to the house. So she's like top of the list. But I can't change my load. And on the other side, from a limitation point of view, like I'm at capacity. And I think a lot of us are feeling like this, that the margin's gone, the load and the limitation balance is out. And Shane, in, in the first week of the series, he, he told that story about how the, the, the local travelers just wouldn't go on any further because they just wanted to stop and let their souls catch up with their body. 
Like, I really resonated with that. That illustration was like, that's me. I need my soul to catch up from where I was three months ago because our bodies are racing ahead of where we are. And so when we read this book, John Ortberg, whose mentor was the pastor and theologian Dallas Willard, he asked him the question. He said, how do I get closer to Jesus? And we're asking this question today when culture has accelerated even further and the pace of life has accelerated even further. And he says that we need to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from life. And he was like, well, what else? Okay, great, nothing. That's it. Ruthlessly eliminate hurry from life. Hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day, and it is distracting us from what is important. And I remember arriving in the burg after listening to the book, and uh, I got out the car, and I barely greeted my family. I said, I've read this book, and it's changed my life, because it's asked a really, really haunting question. And the book talks about a lot of different things. But it asks one question that really got to me. It says, who are you becoming? Like, it's a serious question to have to answer, especially when you're busy and you're running and you just feel like a hamster on a wheel and you don't have time, and then you stop and you go, like, for all of this activity, who am I becoming? Because what you give your attention to is what you become. And what we're finding is that we're in the cycle of activity and doing things and getting busy in the day. And so we kind of like want to treat and reward ourselves at the end of the day. And we go into escapism behavior where we just, uh, we're watching Netflix and Netflix is fine, but we're watching too much Netflix. And we're spending the beginning of our day and the end of our day on social media, just hanging there with our mouths open, drooling on our phones because we've tried to escape from the busyness of the day. And... And John Marcoma says that the state that we're in as a result of all of this is that we are emotionally unhealthy and we're spiritually shallow. We're too alive to die, but we're too dead to live. And our spiritual lives hang in the balance. If ever in your life you read the line that your spiritual life is in the balance, you should listen because it's important. And in Matthew eleven twenty eight, the verse that we've been reading over the last couple of weeks, I just wanna read it for us again this morning. It should come up on the screen. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That part, you will find rest for your souls. I don't know why, but the more I've been reading that over the last few weeks, the more I wanted that more than ever, is rest for my soul. And the reality is that we're not gonna have victory in this area of hurry and busyness and distraction by being given more time. Like if I was to pop up a genie this morning and he rubbed his lamp and said to all of you, I grant you 10 more hours in your week. 10 hours, can you imagine? Margin, space, time to just reflect and engage in your spiritual life, we wouldn't. We would fill it with the same activity, the same busyness, the same rushed lives and activity that that we get ourselves into. And that the only way that we actually make progress and that we unwind this thing of spiritual unhealth and emotional immaturity as a result of the lives that we're leading is to stop, step back, and get under apprenticeship with Jesus. That we need to recognize that he lived a life that was so intentional that allowed him to be busy and engaged and productive and to do the things that he needed to do, but to step back and have ultimate spiritual health in his life. And we read in this book that there are four ways to do this. It's not getting more, this book is not about getting more time. This is not a self-helpy TEDx talk, like this is how you get hours back in your day. This is about being under apprenticeship to Jesus Christ. And he lived a life of silence and solitude, simplicity, slowing, and Sabbath. And today I wanna speak about this idea and the practice of Sabbath and how that helps us in this journey 
of stepping back and stopping the hurry, removing the distraction and getting back to spiritual health. Just before I talk about Sabbath and, and to get into it a little bit, I think we can't do that until we talk a little bit more about desire. Like we all have desire and desire is the thing that drives us. It's the thing that gets us out of bed every morning. This morning I got out of bed with a desire to come and speak to you out of the Bible and to go on this journey of spiritual health together. The other mornings, or most mornings, you get up and you have a desire to go to work and to contribute and to provide for your family. Other days we have desire to, uh, to exercise and to be healthy and to stay fit. But we are driven by our desires. It's the engine behind our lives. Some of you had a desire to come to church this morning, not to listen to me, but to get some free babysitting upstairs. And don't judge me for this either. But when my daughter was one week old, I brought my three-year-old to church and I took him to kids' church and I considered going for breakfast across the road. I was so shattered. <laughs> but I was tired and I said no judgment. But the people sitting at kids' church right now recognizing, we want to talk chaos. Have you sat up there for an hour? It's, it gets extreme. But desire, is a, it's a great motivator. It's the engine. It's the, it's the thing that propels us to often get into a lot of this activity. The problem, though, is when our desire starts to take control of us and when our desire is not placed in the right order of things. Because when we look at it closely, the author of Ecclesiastes, he frames it perfectly. He says that the eye is never satisfied with what it has seen. So then the question is, well, what would it take for our desire to be satisfied? And the theologian Thomas Aquinas, he says, it would take everything. It would take the experience of every single thing for you and I to be totally and utterly satisfied. How many of you here love travel? Like the travel bug is bits and you just want to go places, only three of you. That's great. You love Durban, the rest of you. I eh? just want to chill you the whole time. But I love travel. But Thomas Aquinas says that for me to have the desire of travel satisfied in my life, I would have to go to every place I've ever wanted to go, go to every hotel, every Airbnb, experience the fullness of travel in all of its, in all of its fullness for me, to be for me to have the desire of, of, of travel satisfied in my life. Are there any foodies here? Love eating food, eating out, new restaurants, new cuisine. Well, you'd have to go to every restaurant, go to have every cuisine, every food type, take every cooking class that you could, like all of it, for you to be fully satisfied when it comes to your, your desire and your love for food. We would have to have success in every job. You'd have to sleep with every person you desired. You'd have to win every award. You'd have to run every race that you wanted to. We'd have to own everything in the world. We would have to have it all for our desire to be satisfied. That's the only way. Until that point happens, until you're at 80% of your desire achieved, you're dissatisfied. And the, the, the Catholic theologian Karl Rayner, he says, in the torment of the insufficiency of everything attainable, we come to understand that here, in this life, all symphonies remain unfinished. It's a really powerful quote. What does he mean, all symphonies remain unfinished? You know what that looks like? That looks like you in your car on the way to work in the morning, listening to your favorite song. It's building up to the chorus. You're going to bust out of traffic like you do, and your Bluetooth cuts out. It's, it's hearing that the Sharks had a great game, wanting to watch the highlights on YouTube. You know him, Pimpy scored a try in the corner. He's running with the ball, and your YouTube starts buffering. It's the incomplete experience. It's the unfinished symphony. And that is what John Marcoma says is the, is the current human condition, that we have these desires that are not fully satisfied. 
And the reason is that the, the, the desire that you and I have, it's infinite, it's limitless. It will never, ever stop. It is the way that we built, that our desire every day is new and is never fully satisfied. And the problem is that we are finite and that we do have limits and that we don't have the time, the space, the capacity and the energy to meet these desires. Do you know what the result is when you have infinite desire and a limited human? It's restlessness. And I realized reading this book that I do not have a hurry problem. I don't have a time problem. I have a restlessness in my soul problem. And that human desire is infinite, it's endless, and it's limitless because we were never, ever built for that desire to be answered by something finite. That our desires are infinite because they were meant to be matched by an infinite God, by a God who has a love and a care and a knowledge of you that is infinite. And when that meets your soul, that is when you will be fully satisfied. If you are going to try and take your desire and the things that you want on this earth and fill them with things of this earth, we are going to have the incomplete experience. But Jesus is infinite. His love for you is infinite. And what he did to the point of death on a cross was the, was the opportunity for you to enter into that relationship with him, that we would be satisfied. I love what St. Augustine says. He says, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. That is a beautiful line. We should put that in our cars on where you brush your teeth in the morning. Because what's the thing that we feel when our desire isn't met? Like you feel angst, like an itch that hasn't been scratched. And then the bigger the desires get, you know, the bigger things in life, we start getting anxiety, anger, depression, and our restlessness. So what do we do? Don't know how to deal with it. Don't know how to go to God with this. So we just get busy. And so desires lead to hurry, a life of busyness, activity, hurry, which leads to us just being overloaded. And until God meets that, that's the state we're gonna end in. I, I hate to tell you that, but if we don't have the intervention, that's where we end. But that isn't the end, and there is hope to this. The other side of this is that that's us, right? That's our infinite desire meeting our limitations. But the, the, the challenge is that this is reinforced by the culture that we live in. Because we are marketed to every single day with thousands of adverts using the tools of accumulation and accomplishments, and that the marketing that we see is actually monetizing our restlessness. Like, just think of the adverts that you see. Do you remember the old Axe, the ego ad, where the guy sprayed on the deodorant and he had like 150 women running down the road after him? It's monetizing your restlessness. There was the, the Gillette ads, like the manly man shaving in the mirror. Do you remember the big one, where it was the beast, and you couldn't hear what he was saying because his voice was so deep, and he couldn't get his arm to his his jaw because his arms were so big, but it was like be masculine. It was to, to fulfill that desire or the, the advanced hair studio adverts. Remember Jacques Callas was bored for most of his career and one day he came out with a full head of hair, but he went to advanced hair studio and they said to him, you can be desirable again. And, and, and the marketing says to us, buy this, have this, eat this. Accumulation and accomplishment all the time is reinforcing this thing that we're living in. 
And even I was just thinking about social media the other day. I go through this perpetual cycle of on a Sunday night, I delete Instagram and YouTube. And then by Friday, they're back on my phone. And by Sunday, I delete them again. But I was thinking about the other day, it's like, it's like Alice in Wonderland on social media. It's smoke and mirrors, and it's this unreal fake world that gets put up every single day, and we engage in it, and it's 23 and a half hours of other people's lives that you don't see, which is the boring, mundane parts. But the stuff you do see like self-fulfills this thing of desire and thinking that other people have it better than you. But it's the first thing you see in the morning and the last thing you see at night. We engage in this content. And so it's not all doom and gloom. It's not that we're just left with our infinite desire and that we have this limitation, but there is a practice and a way of Jesus that we get to engage in that is the answer to this. And that is what John Marcoma speaks about in the book. He says that these things of silence and solitude and slowing and simplicity, he, he talks to them of being ways of Jesus, but he, he doesn't like the word discipline, but they are the disciplines of the Spirit. And that is how we get out of this perpetual cycle of hurry and busyness and rush and distraction, which is causing us to be spiritually dead. But if we are to shift and to engage with these practices of Jesus, then there is hope for us and there's life for us on the other side of these things. And so today I want to talk into to the spiritual practice of Sabbath. And Sabbath comes from the Hebrew word Shabbat. You know what it means? It means to stop. That's it. Stop. Stop working. Stop wanting. Stop worrying. Just stop. How often do we do this? Like, actually, yesterday, just I had a little bit of time to prepare for today. I dropped our three-year-old at my in-laws so that he could sleep there overnight. And I got back to our house, and it was just like quiet. It was creepy. <laughs> and like, I just took half an hour before I even did anymore, and I just stopped. Like, I don't do that. It's creepy at first. <laughs> but I can promise you that I was in a better state to prepare for today when I'd just been able to slow. And we just don't do this enough. But God's telling us to do it. In Genesis 1, 2, verse 1 to 2, it says that the heavens and the earth were finished and all of the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. And it carries on a bit. This is, but the, the, the question from this is like, did God need to rest? I mean, just think about creation and everything that we see. It took him six days to do this and we won't get into the arguments about the length and time of the Bible, but it's six days to do this and he took a minute to rest. Like, did God need to rest? Did he just finish it and was like, he finished with, with whatever creation of animals that he did and he sat back and was like, I need a Netflix, I need a beer. Like, that's where I'm at. <laughs> like, like, God did not need that. So what was he doing? He was building into the rhythm, a rhythm, into the DNA of creation that you and I get to live by. Sabbath was not for God. Sabbath is for you and me. He was building in a tempo, a beat, Work, 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 rest. Work, 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 rest. That we have a guide, we have a tempo, we have a beat today that we get to live by and Sabbath is the thing that enables that for us. What happens when we fight against that tempo? What happens when suddenly we're working seven days a week, we're working longer hours? Sometimes we gotta do that stuff. Sometimes we have busy seasons of work and we have to engage with that. But what happens if we start to do this for long periods where it's just endlessly going against the grain of the universe. That is what you're doing. You're moving against the grain and the rhythm. You're dancing out of beats with how you were supposed to live. Do you know what the answer to that is? What happens? It's called burnout. Does anyone here know anybody that's burnt out before? Know someone now that's burnt out? 
I think there are a lot of people here who are burnt out. And I remember as a teenager, my parents were running their own business, and, on, and running your own business is not an easy thing, and they were going really hard at it. And my dad is an A-type driven person. He had been a, a Springbok athlete in his, uh, when he was younger, and he was just an A-type, 24-7 person, driving hard at this business, going, 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 seven days a week, full on, all the time, going against the grain of the universe. His intention, good, provide for family, he, but he was working outside of the beat as to how he should be. Do you know what happened? He hit the wall. He burnt out. And my mom says she remembers going into the office on the day that he burnt out, and she went in, and he, was, he ended up flattening his back for a number of weeks. But in that moment, she said that he started talking slower, that he was actually moving in slow motion, and that he had been working against the grain of the universe, against the DNA and the way in which he was intended to live. And I worry that there are so many of us here that are on that path to burnout because you're on this hamster wheel of hurry and distraction and, and trying to satisfy your desires and not understanding that God has created a better way for you. And I'm so excited that there is a better way, that God has a design for your life that is different to the way that you're living at the moment. During the French Revolution, they decided that they wanted to move from a seven-day work week to a 10-day work week in order to increase productivity. I mean, it's funny, we're going the reverse now. I know Finland are testing a three and four day work week at the moment, and good news, it's working. So maybe it'll, maybe it'll go full circle. But what happened when they went to the 10 day work week? The economy crashed, suicide rates went up, and productivity went down. Like, there's something in that. There are American studies that were recent that show that there is no difference in productivity between the 50 hour work week and the 70 hour work week. There is zero increase in productivity in those additional 20 hours. If you take a 50-hour work week, what does that equate to? Six days. Funny, eh? That maybe God had a design. And that beyond that, we can't be more productive and we start becoming destructive in the way that we live. And so God wasn't burnt out. He took a pause back to create for you and I a design as to how to live. But the other meaning of the word Shabbat or the word Sabbath is to delight or to worship. And so we read in the scripture that he stopped and he delighted over his creation. And so Sabbath is about taking the moment to stop and to be able to engage and worship with him. The author A.J. Swoboda, he writes this, Sabbath has largely been forgotten by the church. I don't know if it's up there. Yeah. Which has uncritically mimicked the rhythms of the industrial and success-obsessed West. The results... Our road-weary, exhausted churches have largely failed to integrate Sabbath into their lives as vital elements of Christian discipleship. It is, not as, it is not as though we do not love God. We love God deeply. We just do not know how to sit with Him anymore. He continued, we have become perhaps the most emotionally exhausted, psychologically overworked, and spiritually malnourished people in history. That's quite a, that's quite a hectic extract. And so when it comes to these ways of Jesus or these spiritual disciplines, we need to establish what is the practical thing that I need to take from this that God is teaching me, and then what is the greater life that it's giving me that I get to carry into my everyday. And so there are two things that I want to tell you this morning about Sabbath. The first one is that it's the only spiritual discipline that was actually one of the Ten Commandments. Guys, you're commanded to stop. You're commanded by God to rest because it's good for you. In Exodus 20 verse 8 Moses delivers the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. And he says this, Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord. 
On it you shall do no work, you, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the seven and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and he made it holy. It's rest and it's worship. And I think in the practicality of it, because that's where we want to get right now, like what does it practically look like to take Sabbath? Sabbath is not your day off, okay? Let's take Saturday and Sunday as a proxy because that's how our calendar is built. But Saturday, you're no longer working for your employer, but let's be honest, we're working. You're mowing the lawn, you're cleaning the house, you're catching up on personal admin. There's still a lot going on on Saturdays. You're going on the school sport run, like that's exhausting enough as it is from what I've heard. There's a lot going on. We also do stuff for fun. We see friends, we bri, we exercise, we go to the dump. It's become a big thing in our house, a rubbish dump. Like, I've actually had to buy a bucky because my three-year-old son loves going to the dump so much. I have to play the garbage truck song on the way there. Like, it's just part of our routine now. But, like, it's no rest on a Saturday. We're still working. Your day off, your leave, is not Sabbath. Sabbath is to stop. And so I'm asking and encouraging you this morning that as you leave here as families, as couples, as singles, start to ask yourself, what does it look like for our family to take Sabbath? What does it practically look like for us to stop? In Jewish culture, they weren't allowed to do and, and still cannot do anything. When the Sabbath comes on a Friday night through to Saturday, you cannot sell, you cannot buy. All you can do is be with your community and take the moment to rest and to worship God. And so we need to work out what this looks like. In our house, it might look a little bit different to some of you, but we're in a, in a busy, hectic stage of life where you've got a three-year-old and a 13-week-old. We have to work out what Sabbath looks like for us. We both have busy jobs. We have responsibilities. We have families to see. But we've decided that on a half day on a Sunday, none of that is allowed to happen. We don't engage with anybody. We don't make plans. We just be together, the four of us. And I'm telling you, it's not restful. It's exhausting. But there is rest in it, and it is our way of doing Sabbath. It's me getting on the floor with my son and not just saying, just sorry, Cam, I can't be with you now. I'll just check my phone, that thing that I do for the other six days of the week. I just engage with him. I get on the floor and I take Chase and Ryder and Rocky and Zuma and all the Paw Patrol pups and I get on the floor and I go on missions with him. And we go on missions around the house and he goes mad and he loves it and he's like more engaged and delighted with me than I've seen him all week. And there from there flows the worship. Thank you God for my kid. Like I've rested, I've stopped from everything else. And I get to delight in him and have that moment as a family. For some of you, you might have a little bit more space. You have your kids are a little bit older, you don't have kids yet, you just had that opportunity to have the space to just stop the engagement, turn on some worship, and say to God, God, where am I unhealthy in my hurry? God, where have there been desires that are limitless in me? Where are they placed above you? Like, help me, God, to get the order of things right, because I understand that infinite desires need to be met by an infinite God. Like, take that moment to engage in a conversation with Him. But find out for you and your family, what does Sabbath look like? Don't make excuses. Jesus told you to do it, because it's good for you. It's a command. Like, let's engage and embrace in this life-giving thing. The second thing about Sabbath is that it's an act of resistance. The Israelites, after first receiving the Ten Commandments, they wandered around the desert for 40 years. They got caught into slavery. They just went wrong. And now they gather back 40 years later, and Moses has to, has to communicate to them the Ten Commandments again. 
And so he says similar words, but they change slightly. Instead of saying, remember the Sabbath, he says to them in Deuteronomy 5, observe the Sabbath day. He's having to place more emphasis on it because they haven't been doing this thing and they've been caught in slavery. And he goes on and says a lot of the same words that he said about six days of work and on the seventh day to take the Sabbath. But then he ends in verse 15 with something different. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. The American theologian, Walter Brueggemann, he says, Sabbath is an act of resistance. It's an act of rebellion against Pharaoh and his empire. It's an insurgency. It's an insurrection against the isms of the Western world. Globalism, capitalism, materialism, all of which sound nice, but quickly make slaves of the rich and the poor. Sabbath is a way of saying enough, I'm done with it. I'm done with these desires controlling my behavior, causing to hurriness, causing to busyness, causing distraction, causing me to take my eyes off Jesus. I will take a day, I will embrace in Sabbath. We will do what we need to do as a family to say enough. Let it be not just a command that you fulfill because I've told you today it's good for you. Do it because it's an act of resistance against the culture that you're living in. Doesn't it feel quite good sometimes to say, I'm not gonna be like that. Our family won't stand for that. We're a family who welcomes God into our week. We're a family who bring, welcomes the life of God into our week. And so it's an act of resistance as much as, as it is a command. The, the, the thing with Sabbath is that it just, it just is not enough for it to be one day. Like we can't go at 150 Ks an hour, six days a week, and rock up on Sunday and go, God, where are you? Please, like, I'm desperate for you. Like, it can't just be this one-day thing. And so that's why I said earlier, on any of these practices of Jesus, let's understand what does the practical outworking look like? And I've been through a little bit of that now, but what is the greater life? What is the greater Sabbath that comes from this practice of spending time with Jesus? And I just want to finish this morning just by just talking through some of my own journey in this and, and, and a little bit of what I've experienced the last couple of months that has quite literally been life-changing for me. And I think what I've realized is that for many years, I mean, I spoke earlier about the busyness back to when I was, I kind of labeled it as A-type. I'm somebody who just always wants to do stuff and push forward and be busy. And what I've actually realized is that I've been busy and chaotic and, um, and led a hurried life because I think in the period after my parents lost their business it was quite a traumatic period for us as a family. And it was a period of, of a level of chaos in our family. And I think for me, I filled the rest of my life with busyness to avoid chaos. So I haven't had a hurry issue. I haven't even had a restlessness issue. I've been trying to avoid chaos by creating order around me. And what this book does and what this thing of Sabbath does, because I've had chances to embrace Sabbath in preparation for today, is to sit and process and to start to go, what is driving my desires and my behavior? And for me, I realized it was this thing of avoiding chaos. And I spent many years trying to do this, and I've started to realize in the last six months that you cannot run from yourself anymore. You can't run from the stuff that drives your desire and drives your behavior. And I really felt like I was hitting a bit of a crescendo in June this year. It felt like, you know, when you're getting towards the top of the roller coaster and that thing comes down hurtling, I felt like I was there. I felt like I was redlining. Things were busy at work. Things were busy at home. Things were busy with people around us and social engagements. And we had a second child coming and I was terrified. And it was hitting this, this crescendo. And then my daughter was born that morning, and we're in the hospital, my wife was holding her, and uh, we were going to call her Blake. And my wife uh, said to me, no, her name is going is to be Olivia. 
because we need, a, we need peace in our house, and her name means peace. We're desperate as a family for this chaos and this hurry to end and to have peace in our home. I told myself I wasn't gonna cry when I spoke about it. And in an act of faith, we trusted that God would bring a new season and a new peace into our house. And you know what happened a week later? A miracle, nothing happened. <laughs> I hadn't slept for seven days, I changed 48 nappies. We were shattered and I was lying at bed, in bed at two in the morning and things just felt out of control and I said, God, please take this chaos from me. And I felt him say, no, the, the, the chaos isn't gonna go, but I can give you my Sabbath peace. And I can tell you that in that moment, I laid down in front of God in a way that I haven't done since I came to know him when I was 15, the desires of my heart. And I said to him, God, my desires are above you. I run ahead of you. In my restlessness, I've taken my eyes off you. And I'm asking that these things would die in me and that I would take on your Sabbath rest. And I've experienced a miracle. God has done something incredible in my life. Right now, I look at my life and it's busy with work. It's busy with family. It's busy with a whole lot of activity. There's another child in the house. I look at it and I go, in, in practice, this should be more chaotic than it's ever been. I've never experienced more peace than I do right now. The drive, the unhealthy thing, the itch that needed to be scratched, it's gone. Like, I've had bad days since. I'm not telling you I'm perfect. Just ask my wife and my family, have I regressed some days and some weeks? I have. But God has done a fundamental shift in me because this is not just about a day. Sabbath is about a rest for your soul. That when it says in Matthew 11, verse 28, that he will give rest for your soul, I have experienced it and it is real. And I don't want to go back. And I have a very strong sense that there are many people in this room today, you are burning out. You are on a railway tr track that can't change. And if you carry on like you're going, the movie doesn't play out well. And I really believe that God wants to meet with us this morning and meet our hurry and meet our busyness and meet the things that we're running from and to say that your desires are good, but when they're above me, you're out of control. You're spinning in a cycle that's out of control and I wanna bring you rest. I wanna bring you Sabbath. I wanna bring you peace that surpasses understanding that when you look at it at face value, your life should be chaos, but you're feeling something different. I would love it if we just actually all took a moment just to stand and just to, with our eyes closed, I would love just to pray with us this morning and take a moment to respond. This might not be everybody's story, but I do think that there's some people this morning who would, love, who would like to respond to this. And if that's you, if you're just saying enough, if Sabbath means stop, if Sabbath means enough, it's an act of resistance. And you asking God to come and meet you in your restlessness and your infinite desire, and you want an infinite God to just connect with you and give you a Sabbath peace, would you just raise your hand this morning as an act of faith? And just to say, God, I want you to bring your peace that surpasses understanding. Jesus, I thank you for everybody with their, their hand raised here this morning. I thank you, Jesus, that you are the answer to our souls. I thank you, Father, for every person here. You made them, you know them, you have knowledge of who they are and the desires that they have. I thank you, Jesus, that their desires are good desires. But I pray, God, that you would take their infinite desire and you would remove the finite things that they're running from or running to and that your infinite Sabbath rest would fall upon this church this morning. God, I pray that your peace that surpasses understanding would come into circumstances that seem insurmountable, in busyness that seems as though it will never end. 
that when we look at our lives and the construct and the structure of our work weeks and the responsibilities we have for the people whose hands are raised this morning, God, that you would change the perspective, God, that you would bring about a peace into their circumstances that brings about something new and something different. Breathe your life this morning on this church, I pray, God. Would you set people free from a life of busyness and hurry and distraction, God? And would you restore to people this morning your life-giving nature that you have placed in them? Jesus, we come to you in faith. We trust you as the giver of life, as the prince of peace, as the beginning and the end of our spirituality, Father God. I thank you, Father. We wait on you this morning, God. We wait for your rest, Father. Lord, may we take Sabbath, Father. May we obey your command. Lord, may we receive the life that it gives that Sabbath becomes Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and all through the week. That as the chaos doesn't leave, God, our, our levels of increase and peace rise, Father God. We thank you, Jesus. We love you, God. We have faith this morning, God, that you will do and begin a work today, Father God, that you will bring to completion in people in this church, Father. We thank you, God. We worship you, Father. In Jesus' name. Amen. So go home and do nothing. It's Sabbath. Thank you, guys. Won't you please uh, stay and grab a coffee and meet some people. And uh, yeah, I look forward to seeing you next week. Cheers.